Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish off Angela Davis Davis's Women Race Class. And here we're going to start from chapter 10 titled Communist Women all the way to the end. Uh, I think that you know who I am if you're watching this. If you happen to just tune into this, go and check out parts 1 and 2 first. If you can go and see my more than 300 episodes I already have up, find me on a podcast platform or on YouTube. Help me out by just liking, sharing, subscribing. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Links for all such things in the description. And uh, yeah, let's just jump right into chapter 10 here. So here she's going to really focus on the place of socialist movements within the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. So the first Marxist organization was established in 1852 in the United States. And as far as we know, there weren't any women involved. Maybe that's our knowledge of it has changed now. But at the time when Davis was writing this, no record of any women being present. Maybe there were women, just there was no real record of them, which is a sign itself that the space was hostile to women. But it would only be around 1900 that women would enter these types of spaces, socialist organizations, and uh, this came about largely through their own efforts. It's not as though one day they were just welcomed with open arms and that was it. They had to really fight to earn their place there. So some of these women, including Pauline Newman, Rose Schneiderman, uh, they bridged the gap between working class issues and the struggle for the vote for women. But at the time, it was primarily white women who would have been included, and they did not necessarily represent the interests of black workers, black women workers, and even black men workers, and the specific experiences that they had within the capitalist system, within industries. Because like we already established, they were in an extra precarious position following slavery in that they didn't have resources that were available to, to white people. And for that reason, they were much more easily exploitable. They were willing to work for a lot less because they had a lot less. And so the capitalist class was very willing to just bring these people on. Now, these specific concerns would only really start to be addressed when uh, black socialists took up these issues. So Lucy Parsons, for example, was one such person. Uh, it was also an anarchist who saw capitalism as a prime evil. She went so far as to say that focusing on race and sex was a dis uh, kind of a distraction concocted by capitalists themselves. So she believed that anything that didn't uh, center capitalism in the class system was just a big distraction propagated by capitalists to divide people, like making the conversation about race or about gender was just a way to distract from the real evil here. Then there were other people, a white woman actually by the name of uh, Ella Reeve Bluer, who would often speak at strikes and other organizations, other demonstrations, and she acknowledged the intersection of racism and classism and acknowledged that black people experience capitalist oppression in a way that's very different than white people. Now, additionally, it was Anita Whitney, who, unlike her white comrades, actually cared about racism as well, was concerned with the inflicted, the repeated violences inflicted against black people that she wanted to oppose, to suggest that, well, part of her project was to suggest that these things, racism and classism, are not totally separate. They both have to be challenged and not reduced to just uh, consideration of class. Then there was a figure of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who is a white opponent of capitalism or to capitalism, and who is disenchanted 
with big socialist groups preferring instead grassroots movements uh, instead of you know these bigger established organizations because they tended towards hierarchization, they tended towards uh, in-group fighting, and so on. And she acknowledged here, or in her life, she acknowledged uh, and raised awareness of race, sex, and class and the differing ways that they are targeted. And then finally, she includes many different figures. These are the ones I'm highlighting here, but uh, then there was also a woman by the name of Claudia Jones, who was a Trinidadian woman who immigrated to the U.S. as a, as a child and who opposed patriarchy, who opposed sexism, indicative of uh, patriarchal institutions and society. And she called attention to the white socialists who had black servants or black people working their land. She thought that socialists needed to interrogate racism and sexism for socialism to possibly happen. Now, this was a common phenomenon where there are these white people who were concerned about their money, concerned about their wealth, who didn't actually care about black people, black workers, and were very much willing to hire them for very cheaply to work in their homes. Meanwhile, they are criticizing the capitalist economy, drawing parallels between it and slavery, describing the horrors of uh, wage labor, all really to solidify their own position while exploiting themselves or participating in ex exploitation themselves. Now that puts us here into chapter 11, rape, racism, and the myth of the black rapist. So sexual assault is, is disgustingly common um, in many different walks of life, uh, unfortunately. And the first laws against it were meant primarily not to defend women who were the primary victims of sexual assault, but to protect men who viewed that women uh, were their property. And so it was an issue where if a woman were to be sexually assaulted, the law wanted to reflect the interests of the closest man in her life, be it her father, her husband, to make sure that his interests were protected and that his property was protected because women were primarily being viewed as ways to extend the family line as essentially just breeders. And so the first laws against sexual assault were directed to uh, men's interests or reflected men's interests. Now, when these first laws came out, uh, really in the early 20th century, there were actually very few men who were convicted and executed for committing sexual assault. And of the 455 between 1930 and 1967, 405 of them were black men which was disproportionately high, of course, uh, compared to the population. So it was primarily targeted against black men. So Davis suggests that this might explain why, at its conception, the uh, anti-sexual assault movement, black women did not have the same response to it as white women did, where there was fear among black women that more enforcement of raw laws and regulations against sexual assault would disproportionately target black men. And there's a long history of black men being, uh, really being sought out by a mob for a lynching uh, because they are believed to have looked at a white woman or, like in the case of Emmett Till, believed to have uh, whistled at a white woman who's the, Emmett Till was just a child who was tortured for having whistled at a, and killed for having whistled at a white woman. Now, this is all to forget the fact that 
sexual assault was only taken seriously if the victim was a white woman or a white girl. If it was a black woman, the, of course, the police, law enforcement, policymakers, they didn't care about that, which just added, uh, kind of added fuel to the fire in drumming up suspicion on the part of black women about the anti-rape movement, movement and how it was going to affect their, uh, themselves and their communities. And then there were many cases in which uh, police officers would assault black women, like in the case of Joanne Little, who claimed to have killed the guard who was trying to rape her uh, and because she murdered someone, but she was doing it out of self-defense. Eventually she was acquitted, but it reflects instead uh, the fact that there were there was this power dynamic between police officers and black women where they would use that opportunity to assault black women. And Davis includes many other examples just to highlight how prevalent this was. So encouraged policing and encouraged uh, stricter rules and punishments in the case of sexual assault were a way by which to enforce further policing over black men and the black community more generally. So against black women, rape was an extension of slave owners control over her body and the societal disregard for black women's experiences with sexual assault reveals society's complicity with this extension of uh, slavery, of this arm of slave power to control black women's bodies. Now, in those cases in which black women would be victimized or be victim to sexual assault, there was an entire apparatus or the many institutions that focused on presenting news to the public would frame it as uh, they would victim blame and suggest that this has something to do with black women's promiscuity that resulted in them being assaulted and not actually about the fact that they were assaulted in most cases by white men, which is all in favor of normalizing these dynamics and to normalize the continued subjugation of black women and black women's bodies. Now this normalization, Davis says, was imposed, in her words, on men of the working class or white men of the working class. Her point being that white men of the working class didn't believe this and that they were effectively brainwashed or these ideas were imposed into their minds so that they would participate in oppressing black women when you know, could just be that racism was very much prevalent among working class white men. But she continues, she says that once white men were persuaded that they could commit sexual assaults against black women with impunity, their conduct toward women of their own race could have remained unmarred or could not have remained unmarred. So how the narrative goes for Davis is that white men, white working class men were doing no evil and then they were brainwashed, or the idea that black women were subordinate to them, this idea was imposed upon them, and then they used that and extended it to include the oppression of white women as well, which is, it is a way to absolve white men of responsibility, I think in this case, and to describe them as victims in a situation in which they are the overwhelming perpetrators of sexual assault. And feminists as well were taking up these 
claims or they believe this stuff like Gertrude Stein or Shulamit Firestone who naturalized the perception of black women's subordination and black men's over-aggressive sexuality. Firestone believed that white people were the world's Oedipal parents in the sense of Freud's Oedipal, Oedipal paradigm and believed that black people were like children. And this was a way to explain for Firestone black men's desire to assault white women and black women wanting to be sexualized and assaulted by white men, which is just a way to naturalize these very social and culturally determined dynamics to make it seem as though there's no alternative. Now, in the case of black men, the history to it is really complicated in that there was both this intense fear on the part of white women that black men were going to victimize them. And this is something that's come up through this text, white women consistently fearing that if black men earn the right to vote or earn power, then they would participate in the patriarchal exploitation of these white women who were scared of black men's entry into these fields. And this same fear extended to uh, the, this idea that black men are more likely to commit sexual assault against white women which wasn't true, but this fear was very much prevalent. Now, one of the complicated things about this is that during slavery and even in the post-slavery period, there were concerted efforts to demasculinize black men and to make it seem as though they are not very strong or sexual, uh, desired or desirous. There was an entire effort to infantilize black men and to reduce them to the state of being uh, not strong, but, you know, making them docile for to be subordinated. So there was this strange shift in which suddenly there was this no longer white women having control over black men. Suddenly there was this fear that black men were going to impose control over white women in the post-slavery period against, uh, you know, well-off white women. At least their interests were being reflected in law. Plus, if there was this emerging narrative about the threat posed by black men against white women, this could be used to justify mob violence against black people, like mentioned earlier in the case of Emmett Till, where people were using, or white people were using any justification they could to continue inflicting violence against black people, black men and women, primarily men uh, in these cases, but also black women. Also, this was largely a distraction and a deflection from the fact that most sexual assaults were being committed by white men against black women as a way to control their bodies, uh, many, including many other uh, reasons to subordinate black women to continue their life of subjugation to white men. Now, this was all, of course, good business for capitalists who wanted there to be conflict between white and black people meant that tire swaths of the population were more uh, ripe for exploitation. Now, the efforts to oppose these violences, those inflicted by white men against black people, so many people were opposing this, really so many women, so many black women, including Ida Wells, who we mentioned in a previous episode, who had uh, three of her friends were actually had been lynched. And so she joined by Mary Terrell. They really worked to oppose lynchings because like such a weird thing 
to even say. It's like, it's un- unreal. Uh, and it would be in 1922 when the uh, NAACP established the anti-lynching crusaders. This sought to create an integrated women's movement against lynching. Now, for those who don't know, maybe you're not born in the States. The NAACP is uh, an acronym for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which has been historically has made unbelievable strides in improving the conditions of black people within the United States. Still a long ways to go. Of course, the forces they're up against and have, have historically been up against are incredibly strong, but they've done a lot uh, to improve these conditions. Now, just so you know, uh, now Davis concludes this chapter by focusing on how class system encourages sexual assault, where rich people have courts and politicians on their side in order to reflect their interests. And it also helps, similarly under slavery, to uh, inflict sexual assault, to use women's bodies essentially as cattle to raise more children and to bring children into the world in a situation where they are going to be, uh, their only options are going to be wage labor. It's good for the capitalists and for the ruling class to continue these trends. Now that puts us here into chapter 12, racism, birth control, and reproductive rights. So this is where it's going to get a little dicey here. That is, we're going to talk about some pretty uh, difficult or, well, conversations that need a lot of nuance, demand a lot of nuance. So at first, the proponents of birth control advocated for voluntary motherhood, and they were subject to similar mockery that the suffrage, uh, the women fighting for women's rights, they experienced. So people didn't want or women didn't want to be forced into motherhood if they could avoid it. So the introduction of birth control and the birth control pill was a way by which women could dictate, could determine when they would actually get pregnant. You know, that, of course, this is something that if I had the ability to get pregnant, I would definitely want to be able to have control over when that happens and not have it be determined for me. Now, the women that fought for this were ridiculed. It was believed that, you know, women were just not equipped to emotionally and intellectually handle their own bodies. And so they were treated like anyone who fancied this uh, they were treated like you know, they were punching above their weight, like women actually had no stake to their own bodies, and it was all a big joke, not to mention the fact that actual violence ensued and there was a lot of revolt against these ideas because it would simply signal then that men wouldn't have the same control over women's bodies. They wouldn't be able to just force women to be pregnant whenever they wanted by imposing their power over women. Now, the same thing would occur in the case of the pro-choice movement that would come about really more significantly in the mid-20th century, where that was treated like um, women having actually no right to their own bodies, not getting, not being able to choose what happens. And it was believed that that right would encroach upon the right of a uh, fetus. Now, in the case of birth control and the pro-choice movement, Davis is clear that these are necessary for women's emancipation but she goes through the trouble of identifying the extent to which that it primarily reflected white women's experiences and white women's uh, efforts to attain emancipation from their own sexist subordination. And she says, kind of regrettably, she says, abortions when necessary 
are a fundamental prerequisite for the emancipation of women. And I'm just flagging this because this rhetoric around necessity is a little bit troublesome in that we much must then ask like okay well what is necessary who gets to determine when it is necessary because it should just fundamentally be the person whose body it is and then it you know we don't really have to talk about it but in any case this is she really signals the importance of access to uh, safe and you know easily accessible abortions and also birth control to allow women to be free and to do things that they want and not be totally beholden to their bodies if men want them to be so it's important to acknowledge though that historically the birth control movement was extremely racist and sexist and this is the same case with uh with the abortion movement where these efforts ignored that is the birth control movement and the pro-choice movement they ignored these legacies of the legacies of sterilization and forced abortions for women of color in the united states including indigenous women black women hispanic women or latino women who were not allowed to propagate and so these tools that were starting to be normalized in their use among white women had historically been used against black women now, in the case of abortion, it is both wrong to deny someone access to choose what happens to their own bodies, but it is also wrong to impose that on them. Imposed abortions are really as horrendous um, as denying women the opportunity to have them. And the same with sterilization, where birth control being used voluntarily is very different than it being imposed upon people. It All of this hinges upon an acknowledgement in that you know so-called classic liberal sense that each person are, is their own autonomous being and they are, should be able to choose with their own reason what happens to their body that is their own and that cannot happen if people are forced to be sterilized forced to undergo uh, an abortion or being denied these things now simply these movements had to address these histories and if they had it would have been a good way to include black and indigenous women into the fold and to bring them into that struggle. But because these movements largely ignored these histories, it created or fostered a sense of suspicion on the part of women of color that these movements were not actually going to reflect their interests and would actually continue these legacies of the oppression of women of color. Like it would continue to they would still be used against women of color. So black and Puerto Rican women comprised about 80% of the deaths from illegal abortions in the years before abortion was criminalized, which was also not reflected in the pro-choice movement. That is how it was going to actually be good for black and Latina women in their uh, quest for bodily autonomy and for emancipation. Now, additionally, and this is one of those points that are often co-opted by uh, people who don't like bodily autonomy, where Davis suggests that for these women, like black and Hispanic women, indigenous women, abortion was less a demonstration or to access abortions was less a demonstration of women's emancipation because for them, they had been associating it with sterilization, forced sterilization, with forced abortions. And so for them, it was actually a sign of more oppression, not necessarily less 
oppression. And for them, you know, even in cases where they chose these things, they would often be motivated by a desire to refrain from bringing a child into horrible conditions that they were living. They didn't want to bring people into this. And there's one, uh, you know, there in, in there was one case that she talks about in which um, an enslaved woman murdered her own children because she didn't want them to live in that world, which is obviously an ex very horrible thing to to have happened uh, but in any case it reflects the extent to which that there was this active desire to avoid bringing more people into the situation because it was that horrible in any case the ability to avoid and cancel pregnancy pregnancies was integral to all women having more opportunities to work and access other arenas which was primarily relevant to wealthy white women who could move around and could like pursue different jobs if you were a black woman indigenous woman you didn't have such opportunities and so suddenly you know having bodily autonomy wasn't necessarily going to mean you were going to be liberated in all of these other ways which of course like i said all these arguments are co-opted have been co-opted by people who hate freedom and so they try to use this to justify saying that abortion is racist so they adopt the rhetoric of uh, racism or being anti-racist to pursue their own ends to take away people's rights to their own bodies, which is always scary. But we can both be critical of this history, critical of the movement even, while also acknowledging its underlying benefits and why it has to always be fought for and really maintained. Because currently the land of so-called liberal democracy takes away more than half the population, or ceases to protect half of the population's right to their own body. Pretty scary thing. Uh, for the so-called classic liberals to be taking away people's bodily autonomy. But whatever suits their agenda. Now, there are many other issues here, or many other concerns would arise. So when women, mostly white women, gained access to birth control, in was it was becoming more common, also access to abortion, a new fear emerged that if white women were having fewer kids... That would mean that black women, Hispanic women, indigenous women would be having more kids. And so there was a sudden fear that white women would be replaced or white people would be replaced because they wouldn't be the majority anymore, which is a, a fear that ref is, is obviously <laughs> unfounded. But it also reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be the majority population in a given country where it has nothing to do with numbers. It is the localization, it is the concentration of wealth and political power that are going to determine who has power. But this fear nevertheless reflected just how deeply entrenched racism was in this setting. So this was called the uh, race suicide thesis, that white people would be essentially uh, committing suicide as far as their race went by having fewer children, and they would be replaced. And it dovetails with the replacement theory as well. The idea that white people won't be the majority population anymore, and so that would mean that they will, will be treated like minorities, which is just really telling about how much people actually know how poorly minority populations are treated and how they don't want to become that. At least that is made apparent in this fear, yet they nevertheless refuse to acknowledge it and choose instead to fight for their own, um, their own privilege, their own power. So there were actually efforts to increase 
the prevalence of birth control consumption and abortions among black, poor, immigrant, indigenous women. And of course, it was going to be done in ways that were less safe, less, you know, uh, less reliable, which could participate in offsetting this fear or a, a relative rise in the population of black children versus white children or indigenous children. So in that way, it would also be weaponized to continue these histories of uh, the oppression of black women and black people. Now, for, the, for socialist women in the early 20th century, birth control was important, but not it wasn't their like central aim. It wasn't their primary focus. So some like Margaret uh, Sanger, or Sanger uh, they were problematic in that they advocated for birth control to reduce the number of workers, which was very racist and really eugenicist. E eugenicist. It was an example of eugenics. Because among the socialists, there was this idea that if there were more and more workers, there would be less opportunity to oppose capitalist exploitation because the capitalists could just say, oh, you don't want to work? That's okay. I have thousands of people lined up outdoors because of this, this entire population, so many people. Uh, they'll work for me, and then I don't need you. So socialists thought that the worker pool had to remain small. But when we have discussions about this, we must ask, who are not going to be reproducing in this situation? So they, obviously, in most cases, being white women, would want white women to still be having kids, but wanting to reduce the number of black women having children or uh, indigenous women having children. And this just reveals the extent to which that racism can seep into these even these socialist circles and these socialist movements and draw from earlier histories of racial oppression. Now, in the uh, pro-choice movement, the 60s and 70s, knowledge of these histories became more apparent. There was also, you know, television was being made more accessible, radio being made more accessible, a growing, I guess, an elevating lower class, still not in good conditions and still a very strong, poor class of people. But people had more access to communication and connection with others. And suddenly, people could then become aware of these different histories, become aware of different people's experiences. And so in the 1970s, there was a case in which uh, two sisters, uh, Minnie and uh, Mary Ralph, who were t two kids in the 70s, they were forcibly sterilized because they were deemed mentally unstable or mentally disabled. And so it was used as justification to sterilize them to make it sure that they couldn't reproduce. And this created quite a stir, even among white women who thought that this was unjust because it's, I mean, it should be considered unjust. And this helped to bring into perspective the differing ways in which black women experienced the struggle and how they had very different needs compared to uh, white women. And then there was the added, just to conclude this chapter, there was the added effect of white women actually being jealous of black women being sterilized without their consent because white women wanted this because it would mean more opportunities technically for some white women who could access it themselves, but still for black women who couldn't still access political office or many jobs, edu education, like it didn't necessarily mean more opportunities. And that'll put us here into the final chapter, chapter 13, 
the approaching obsolescence of housework, a working class perspective in which she's going to consider the place of housework and the many sexist and racist implications of it. So women's work in the home is, is an endless cycle. Uh, there's no, no retirement for women. You know, today you can speak to this where women are often expected to work jobs and then also expected to take on all of the domestic tasks, which is just called the second shift in their day. They work one shift in their wage labor jobs, and then they go home and then take care of the house, take care of the children, while uh, a dude probably goes and plays video games or something. And this just reflects how, uh, really how traditional we still are and participate in the continued subjugation of women and expect women to take on all of these tasks, not to mention all of the extra emotional labor that women are expected to take on, all of the managerial roles in the household, and everything like that that don't even cross uh, many men's minds. And a lot of it is just invisible. And men aren't socialized to seeing it. And so women are largely expected to take this stuff up. Now, even though more men have taken on some of these tasks, more than historically, their efforts are often still framed as helping women. Like when they do something, they don't see it as a necess necessary thing they should be doing if they're living in a house, you know, helping to keep it clean, to make sure that children are being fed, that children are getting to their doctor's appointments and swimming lessons, and if you do that kind of thing, uh, or making sure that everyone's well-fed, they treat it as instead uh, they are an employee and their partner, a woman, is a manager who's just, they're just helping their manager out, which is very problematic and it really helps to skew the issue and make it seem as though that women are overbearing, women are asking too much of men, and really women just need to uh, dial it back. Now, that's my interpretation of how things are. However, Davis takes a little bit of a different stance in that she sees that even if men took up all of this work instead, all of the mental labor, all of the invisible labor, there would still be the underlying problem of this work existing itself. And this is this type of work for Davis, it doesn't stimulate uh, any creative or productive desires. It is just mundane, laborious chores. Like we all know, and we all, no one likes them. They suck, but we, we do them. Now, her point is not to say that men should just take up half of the work or even more than that, because she says that this work would still exist. Instead, she advocates for the socialization of housework where it's no longer a private thing, where people just, you know, are expected to keep their own places clean. Instead, this could be something that was organized by the state where people would come around and clean houses professionally, they could do it quickly, and it would free up time for others to actually work on things that matter to them. Now, this is, it seems like a good idea in that it would also mean that the work could happen more efficiently, because if there were teams doing this and they could go around, provided that you consented to having people come into your place, like in taking this on, they could do it a lot quicker than you can, and it would free up time for you. And assuming that it being socialized, they would have good wages, they wouldn't be exploited, and so on. Now, that, that's all well and good, and I think, I think that's fantastic. But until that happens, this shouldn't preclude from having discussions about how men need to be taking up way more domestic tasks and responsibilities than they do. 
And there, you know, there's probably someone listening like, oh, I take up you know, all this work and that's fine. You're doing great. You know, you keep, keep going. But just on average, acknowledging how this is unequally distributed and what can be done to try to improve these conditions for women. Now, so long as capitalism doesn't see value or the opportunity to earn profits in this kind of labor by social or by, you know, uh, hiring people to work to just clean other people's homes in way in ways just described, then it won't actually get off the ground. And so in this case, Davis is really drawing upon this Marxist tradition to identify how capitalism will furnish us the possibilities of doing things quite efficiently that can then be usurped and taken over for the workers' benefit so that they aren't being exploited in those tasks. So it's possible that with proper use of industry, we can make housework obsolescent, hence the title of the chapter. That is, we can make it useless. We don't, you know, we won't need to uh, keep doing it anymore. And this happened, like, she was also writing about this quite optimistically, but this book now about 40 years old, this hasn't happened yet. Uh, we're still very much within a privatized understanding of household chores, which was, of course, not, not always the case. Like, when people lived in community settings, they would take up the labor uh, and distribute it evenly, not so that it would just be like an individual person's responsibility. And the same with childcare, like one person expected to raise one child instead of a community helping each other. It's, it's a big task and it's very difficult to do, especially if both parents are expected to, expected to be working in industries as well. It makes it really hard. Now, of course, the implicit association of women with housework uh, can change. Like, there is that potential. But it hasn't always been this way, and that's why it can change. Like, historically, the way that domestic chores would be distributed would be a lot more equal, where she says, and she really draws upon Engels, Frederick Engels, who wrote, um, who wrote a lot about the experience of women under capitalism with housework, who believed that the present inequality between men and women is really, or at least the inequality between men and women, was kind of foundational for capitalism because capitalism relies not only upon labor that it can exploit in industry, it relies upon a lot of other invisible labor, mostly conducted by women, because for the capitalist, they need their worker base to stay alive. They need their worker base to be reliable and to have, you know, to eat somewhat well so that they can keep working. And these tasks fall on women to keep men, mostly um, men workers at the time and in Engels' time, available to work. And this labor is not valued at all in the capitalist economy. And historically, women were much more capable in terms of doing tasks that would be uh, participating in a community and doing things that would be productively efficient and developmental for the community. And with capitalism and with its ability to furnish people with basic necessities that are cheap, probably poorly made a lot of the time. This steadily took away people's knowledge of how to run communities themselves, took away their abilities to actually be able to do things with their own knowledge themselves. And the same applies to men as well, like to all people, certainly something that Davis would recognize. Uh, and this is all not to mention that women... There's the page gap, pay gap as well. And even with the idea that there could be a designated group of people doing work, 
could taking taking on housework instead of it being an individualized thing like of course uh issues of racism would need to be addressed here and sexism where women would be paid less black women paid even less these things would need to be addressed now black women have a very different history or in relationship with housework given uh given their the expectation that during slavery they had to take on both domestic labor and work in the fields work in uh you know do all the child care and everything like that and so whereas with white women there was a steady construction of the idea of femininity and the expectation that white women would go and work in the home. For black women, it was all it was more a case in which they were expected to take on every role. Like we mentioned in the first episode, they took on this kind of genderless status. And so freedom from this type of labor, while it was really important for white women, for black women, it wasn't necessarily that, you know, the, the be all end all because they would still have all of these other tasks that they were going to be expected to do. And Davis warns against, like in the case of white women, that uh, just by, if we just give uh, white women workers in the home a paycheck, you know, treat it as though it is wage labor, then that can make things better. Of course, that would just continue the same cycle of capitalist exploitation that Davis is identifying. Now, it's also important to note how white women's emancipation from household work meant black women would take on those tasks. And this happened a lot, where white women were trying to pursue jobs in industries like or political office, and they would hire black women, Hispanic women, to work for them for cheap, or, or other immigrant women to work for them for cheap because they knew they could exploit these women. And so this reveals as well how this fight uh, to emancipate themselves from housework, from the home, actually helped to perpetuate racism. So instead of advocating for a women's domestic labor strike, Davis suggests the fight for jobs so they can then unite with other working women, whereas housewives are too atomized. Like she suggests that women need to enter industry, black and white women, indigenous women need to enter industry so that they can then come together to oppose their exploitation. Whereas if they just stay in the home, they're going to be too individualized, too atomized, too separated to form any kind of union or strike against that system. So we must socialize housework along with all other industries. That's the final prescription she gives us. And yeah, that's about it. Uh, if you like what I did, uh, you know, you can tell me about it on a podcast platform that allows you to leave reviews or on a YouTube video. You can like, share, subscribe if you like what I did. If there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, tell me what you think, like the status of Davis's work, like has her thought changed? Of course, it's still extremely relevant, like she has really no parallel in this field, but um, doesn't mean there aren't still some issues that we can raise and talk about. But yeah, I'd love to hear what anyone might have to say. And on that note, take care.